starting from, uh, uh, we're, reading, we're reading in Luke chapter 13. And as you recall, we're, we're continuing along the chronological life of Jesus. And we are in Luke chapter 13. In the last five months or so of his life, Luke chapter 13, and we're starting to read from verse 10. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again, and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done, so come, during them, and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for these eighteen long years, should she not have been released from the bond on the Sabbath day? And as he was saying this, all his opponents were being humiliated, and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done. Okay, so it starts out in verse 10. It says that, that he was teaching in, in one of the synagogues. And interestingly enough, this is, um, this is the last occurrence that we're going to see in Jesus' life where he's in a synagogue. The last time that, that we're going to have documentation of his being in a synagogue. He was teaching in the synagogue, and he sees a woman there who, was bent, who had a, a sickness caused by a spirit. So, the scriptures tell us specifically a spirit was behind this sickness. So, we've seen before, and we've covered this before in this, in this very series, that there are different reasons for sicknesses. Sometimes a sickness is unto death, where God is going to use that sickness to end the life of an individual. And it may be a very nice individual, but... There is something that needs to take us eventually. Sometimes there's a sickness caused by a spirit. Sometimes there's a sickness for the glory of God. So there are different reasons. This one is caused by a spirit. And it says that she was bent double and she couldn't straighten up at all. So she had this curvature of the spine and she was bent all the way over, double. And, uh, um, and she, it goes on to tell us later that she had this for 18 years. But... It says in verse 12, when Jesus saw her, he called her over and he said, Woman, you're freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. So think about this. There's this woman who's been totally double who's in the synagogue. Jesus sees her and he calls her. He says, come here. Come here. The Lord Jesus calls. And he asks us to come. Now she could have said, no, not me. I'm good. I'm fine. And you think, how can she be good? She's bent double. Well, think about our lives sometimes. We say, I'm fine. (laughs) When we're really not fine. But she she could well have said, no, I'd I'd rather not. You know, I, I, I don't like to be in the limelight, you know. But she came. She came forward. He called her and she came. 
Then he said to her, you are freed from your sickness. But she wasn't freed at that instant. He spoke the word. Now, he could well have just spoken the word and had her healed. He could have done that. But he chose to speak the word and then follow it up. And it says he laid his hands on her. Now, Luke in particular, being a physician, the writer of this gospel, specifies which hand things are done with very often, as a physician does. You know, not being a physician, I would say, the guy hurt his hand. Well, the physician says, the guy hurt his left hand. The guy hurt his right hand. Or hurt his left ring finger. They're very specific about which digit even. It says he laid his hands. So both hands he laid on her. And immediately, as soon as his hands touched her, she was made erect again and she began glorifying God. But the synagogue official was indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath and he began to tell the crowds, look, there are six days in which work should be done, so come during them and get healed, but not on the Sabbath day. So all of a sudden, he's now become the officiator of healing. He says, come during the six days and get healed. Well, how often does healing take place? You know, Jesus just happened to be there on that day. You know, if you're sick, you're like, ah, I have a need too, Lord. Now that you're here and in the mood for healing. And, and, uh, and the synagogue official says, no, 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 no. Come on the other six days. We don't know if Jesus is going to be there. If you're really sick and you've seen a healing, you're like, um, just a moment, sir. you have any more power in you for me? And this synagogue official is turning them away. Why? Because it said specifically, and we've read the verses before, that you should not heal on the Sabbath day. Not in the Bible, not in the law of Moses, but in the Mishnaic law. They said you couldn't even do a good work of healing on the Sabbath day. And remember, Jesus had disdain and contempt for the laws of men. And he went out of his way to violate the laws that were written by the rabbis. Because he said, you've put so many laws on people, they no longer know what's right. And you've just filled them with this. And remember, there there are, and they still exist today. These haven't gone away. There's over 100 human-made laws around the Sabbath day. So the Orthodox Jews, I'm sorry, over 1,000 around the Sabbath day. So the Orthodox Jew on the Sabbath day, I mean, they're just strapped just surrounded by rules and regulations on the Sabbath day. Go into an Orthodox Jewish home, they'll have a meal on on Saturday afternoon, but they can't keep the meal in the oven. I mean, there's all these rules, but they they can keep the meal on a warmer, so it's on on a warmer that doesn't get over a certain temperature. So if you can place your hand or something on that warmer, it's okay. I mean, all these rules, so they've added, they continue to add to these rules. Very restrictive. But Jesus says in verse 15, Jesus answered him and said, you hypocrites. I mean, where where is the political correctness in Jesus? There's not much. He says, you hypocrites. Does not each of you. So he's not just speaking to the synagogue official because he says hypocrites. And he says, does not each of you. So he's speaking to the entire leadership and all the rabbis there. Does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him. And he's probably picking out precisely what these men had done that day. 
and calling them hypocrites. He says, and this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is. That's a clue. Remember, Jesus doesn't heal the masses anymore. He heals individuals based on need. Why, of all individuals, would he call her out? Well, here it says, she is a daughter of Abraham. That's a clue that she is of the believing remnant. There is a believing remnant in Israel of those who have not lost faith. Even when Elisha cried out, thinking that he was the only one left in his day and age, God said, no, there are 7,000 that I have that have not bowed their knee to Baal. He calls her out as a daughter of Abraham, meaning that she is among the believing remnant. Remember when, when uh, uh, Lazarus and the rich man died. It says Lazarus was in the bosom of Abraham. He was of the believing remnant. This woman is of the believing remnant. That's why when he sees her, he calls her out. And he says, a daughter of Abraham as he is, whom Satan has bound for these 18 long years. Well, how did Jesus know this? She never said, ah, well, I've been bent double 18. He didn't interview her. He just called her forward and boom, he says, you're going to be freed from this. But he knew she had been suffering. So he starts describing it to this synagogue official and to the other rabbis. He says, she has been bound for 18 long years. And look at the identification here. He doesn't say just 18 years. He says, 18 long years. He knew how long she had suffered and that these were miserable years. Yeah, you go through periods in your life sometimes that are months or years that are a whole lot longer than just regular years in your life. And if you're suffering in severe pain, these are long years. And Jesus knows it. He knows precisely when it started. He knows precisely how long it's been. And He identifies with the longness of it. With the length of this sickness. He identifies with it. This is the Lord that we have. He identifies with our struggle. He is not unaware of our struggles. You know, we may say, cry, cry, cry to the Lord and say, Lord, all this is happening and you don't even care. He's like, no, I do care. I do care. These were 18 long years. So when you're suffering, remember, Jesus knows this. Should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? You say, well, why wasn't she released in year one if she's a child of Abraham? I mean, there are sicknesses that come upon people and we don't have explanation why we're not released immediately. Why sometimes we carry that sickness to our death. We don't know. And Jesus didn't offer a bunch of... Ex ex uh, didn't explain this here either. And as he said this in verse 17... All his opponents, all his opponents, were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over the glorious thing, things being done by him. Over the glorious things being done by him. So, it didn't stop there. There were obviously other things being done. Or else it would, they would, have, it would say the glorious thing that had been done. So, it didn't stop there. That's why this guy was trying to hold back the crowd. So, just sit down. Come back tomorrow and get healed. They're like, forget you. I'm going to see this guy. So you see that, that uh, the people for Jesus 
people came first. This, this is the heart of the message today, that people come first. Individuals come first. This is not a violation of the Scriptures. But, but uh, that, that people come before all the little rules we have. And I want to look at a few examples in Scripture of what happens when people put others first. When we put other people first. And then what happens when we stop putting other people first. So, um, for example, if you look at this verse. you turn to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, you got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 2. So it's like General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing, Philippians chapter 2 verse 3, do nothing from selfish or empty selfishness, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Philippians 2, 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Look at what God calls us to. Looking out for the interests of others. And this is what Jesus did. He called this woman out in need, and He healed her. And He said, This daughter of Abraham, you do more for your animals than you want me to do for her. Okay, let's look at the life of David. So we're going we're gonna to turn now to, um, to 2, Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 23. So that's in the Old Testament. And uh, um, I don't know, it's about eight, eight books in or something like that. 2 Samuel chapter 23. So you have 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And this is at, almost right at the end. I think it's the second last chapter in, in 2 Samuel. Um, 2 Samuel chapter 23. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, what it does is it's summarizing different events from David's life. And this is one event in particular. 2 Samuel chapter 23 verse 14. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So this is recounting an instance where David was, was uh, hiding in the wilderness. He wasn't yet king. He was just a soldier of some guys that were actually rejects from other things in life. It says all those who, who were in debt, all those who were, who were discontented, they gathered to him and he became captain over them. It says that in 2 Samuel uh, 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 verse uh, chapter 6, but now we're in, verse tw- in chapter 23, verse 14. So David's hiding with his men, and the Philistines, the Philistines, so this, this, this uh, uh, group of enemies, controlled the city of Bethlehem. That is the city that David was born, in Bethlehem. So David was born in Bethlehem, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but at the time it was under Philistine control, at this time in history. In verse 15, David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? 
Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So here is David. David just mentions, he says, boy, it'd be nice to have a drink from that well in Bethlehem. That's where he grew up. The well by the gate. He was very specific. Which well in Bethlehem? The well by the gate. It'd be nice to have a drink of water from there. That nice, cool water. I really love the taste of that water. He was just mentioning this. So three men thought so much of David, they broke through the ranks of the Philistines, just three men, broke through the ranks of the enemy army to go and get David some water from that well. I mean, that's how much they love David. They bring it to David, and David's like, you brought me water from that well? He said, you guys risked your lives for me. I couldn't drink this water. And he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. He says, far be it from me. Once he says, far be it from me, there is no way they could convince him differently. That was taking an oath. He says, I'm not going to drink this. I take an oath. I will never drink this water where you guys risked your lives for me. And they later become the three mighty men of his army. I mean, these men were fearless. If you think you're tough, you're nothing compared. I'm nothing compared to these mighty men of David. You talk about the feats that they did. There, there was a lion caught in a pit. Benaiah jumped into the pit just to kill that lion. I mean, would you, how many people would do that today? I mean, these, these were real men. The same guy, Benaiah, goes to an Egyptian, a man of great stature, without any weapon in his hand. And he goes, and he, he, without a spear in his hand, and he goes and he grabs the Egyptian spear from him and kills him with his spear. I mean, these guys are really tough guys. But David cared about these people so much that they loved him in return. Okay, so you, you see, he put people first. And it is because the church, because the reason the church has become, the, within 200 years of its origin, the Christian church became the dominant religion of the world is because they cared for the sick and they cared for the needy. They cared for the poor. They cared for the sick. Where no other religion was doing this. The Jews were supposed to be doing this. They were not doing it. When you care for the sick and for the needy and for the poor, you will grow. When a church cares for the sick and the needy and the poor, it grows. This is what happens. It grows this way. we got all these tables out here setting up for, for orphans uh, uh, to adopt or to foster care. This is great that the church would have an emphasis on this once a year, to get people involved in this. This strengthens a church. When you care for the sick and the needy, it strengthens you. When, when I was just in the airport yesterday, and I saw that the, you, you know, they, they have this call if you need a little extra time, and you get you know, people on wheelchairs coming in and putting them on the airplane first. This is good. When you do this for the sick and the needy, they don't do this in every country. You look at the third world nations. Look at them. They don't do this type of thing where they take care of the poor and the needy in the same way. And there's a reason why they remain in the third world. This is a good thing. So, let's, let's turn to another portion. The same person, David, let's read in Deuteronomy 17. So, you're going to turn back a few books. The fifth book of the Bible is Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17. So, this is the outline of what happens, what a king should be doing. So here's the outline of what a king should be doing in Deuteronomy 17. It says that when you go into the land and you get a king, here's what the king should be doing. 
When you enter the land, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, Deuteronomy 17, 14, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself. He shall not cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Look at this. You say, well, every king in Israel did that. That's right. Every king in Israel disobeyed. If you were a king, you were not to multiply wives. You were to have one wife. One king, one wife. You were not to multiply riches. You were not to greatly increase in silver and in gold. They all increased in silver and in gold. What happens to every politician? They want to get rich while they're in politics. In our country, too. And they say, well, I just... You know, yeah, you, you confront them. Yeah, you came in here, you had $10,000 in your bank account. Now, after 16 years of being a politician, you have $300 million. They say, well, I made some good investments. Oh, come on. You had insider information and you made those good investments. That's how it works. He says, don't do this. He warned them about this. They were not to multiply wise. In fact, in verse 18 it says, Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. So he was to take a copy of the law of Moses, which is being written here. This entire law of Moses. And he was to write a copy of it in his own hand, with his own hand on a scroll, watched by the Levitical priests to make sure he didn't make a mistake. Verse 19, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. Look what it says. It says the king was to read his own copy of that scroll every day of his life. He was to read it. It shall be with him in verse 19. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. Look, if he meditates on this, he'll fear God, and his heart will not be lifted up above his countrymen. This is critical. Many of you are going to be very successful in life. You're going to move up in companies. You're going to move up in careers. You're going to become great surgeons. You're going to become uh, great whatever, great business people, great artists. This happens. And you will see as you rise up, there is something that is really disgusting that everybody else sees in you, but you don't see yourself, and that is pride. It is so much easier to see in another than in ourselves. And he says, if you take this book and you fear God, and you meditate on this book, it will keep you from raising yourself up above your countrymen. And this is critical. And if you think, oh, come on, I, I won't get proud. I'll remember where I came from. Liar. You are a liar and a hypocrite, if you think that. Because you will be wrong. If you think that you are so strong that in and of yourself, you can keep yourself from pride, you are deluded. 
what you should be saying is, Oh God, help me a sinner. Keep me from walking in pride and setting myself up above my countrymen. And what you see in all kings is that they set themselves up above their countrymen. And they set themselves up so that they are different from other people. And it happens the same in our government. They set themselves up so that they are in a class different from the rest of us. And it happens in our own careers. As we start going up, we... And, and it's happened to me, and I continually have to check myself. You know, I start feeling I'm something of this, and I'll speak harshly to a secretary. So whenever I hire a person now, a secretary, they work for me. I give them a little portion uh, uh, from, from, from the... Um, that was written by, by First Samuel, that was written by Samuel, and it talks about the pride that Solomon came into. And I hand this to them, and I say, when you start seeing me, walking proud and treating you as I shouldn't. Hand this back to me and I'll remember. Because I need to be checked by those who work for me. And so you, you see that, that one lifts themselves up above others. Now let's look at this man, David. So, so uh, let's look in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to start reading from verse 1. So now David is in his kingdom. He's no longer hiding out in some cave. Now he's in his kingdom. He's all been established in his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read what David does once he's established in his kingdom. Remember, David, the good guy, that thought a lot of other people, that put other people first. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. Then it happened in the spring, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Okay, so what's the occasion? This is the spring. The winter's over. The spring says the time when kings go out to battle, where David should have been out in battle. But no, he's all established in his kingdom, so he sends the general Joab to go out and fight. I thought this is the season that kings go out to battle. No, he's starting to put himself above others. Verse 2. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of, his, of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and she told David, I am pregnant. Okay. So here David, and, and, and a lot of times you will see that, that uh, movies will make Bathsheba out to be a prostitute or, or one who, who was, um, who, who was uh, seducing David. You never see that in the scriptures. David was king. You can go and you can see, and I've seen it, the place where his palace was. Right there on that border between uh, 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 um, Benjamin and Judah. Right there on the border because he was trying to win the Benjaminites' allegiance, because they, they had favored Saul. And on the highest point of that is where his palace was built. He's walking around on his roof. He can see plenty what's going down on below him, because he can see over the walls, because he's king. What's he doing on the roof in the middle of the night? Well, because the man is restless and he can't sleep. And many men understand what I'm talking about. 
It was at night. He was restless. He couldn't sleep. He had plenty of wives he could have entertained himself with. But no, he has to look upon another man's wife who happens to be bathing. And so he inquires. So he has men around. And he says, go find out who that woman is. And so they come back and they tell him. And men understand the way that other men think. He says, who's that woman bathing down there? And I'll tell you, his associates knew knew quite well that David has an eye for this woman. Men understand what happens with men when they happen to be walking around in the middle of the night. And it says, it says in verse 3, So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said to him, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he says to her, they say to him, They didn't just say, oh, that's Bathsheba, period. No, they're warning him. They said, that's Bathsheba. That's the daughter of Eliam. That's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Those are not unknown names to David. We're going to look in the end of 2 Samuel, where it's mentioning the mighty names of the men, the mighty men of David, the ones who really fought with him from the beginning, the ones who stood at his side. Two of those names are Eliam and Uriah the Hittite. This was your choice soldier's daughter and your other choice soldier's wife. David, watch it. Watch what you're about to do. This is not just any woman that happens to be some virgin woman. No, this woman is married and she's married to your soldier who's out there fighting for you, and she's the daughter of your other soldier who's out there fighting for you. Think about it. But no, he's going to put himself above others. This was calculated by David. David sent messengers and took her. It wasn't like she was trying to seduce him, just happened to be taking a bath. No, you don't know when the king's going to be walking around on this roof. She's just taking her bath. He took her, had her taken. When she came to him, he lay with her. She says, well, you know, she didn't stop him. How do you stop a king? You take a secretary that's being, that, that the CEO of the company is coming on to them. How easy is it for that secretary? Not easy. Not easy. And especially in past generations, because you can blow a whistle now and make a ton of money in a lawsuit. But when I was young, and that's not that long ago. Women in the workplace were highly abused and there was no recourse. How much more in that day? And this is not just a CEO. This is the king. People loved David. He stops caring about other people. And it's his downfall. Jesus cared about this woman who was bent double. The synagogue leaders did not. It was their downfall. So then what happens is, the woman happens to get pregnant. She sends the message back. Hey bud, I'm pregnant. Now what? My husband is out fighting a battle. He's been there for who knows how long. They're going to know when this baby's born that he wasn't here nine months earlier. And they're going to kill me. Because I will be called an adulteress. So David calculates what to do. So he brings Joab back. He tries to get. He brings. I'm sorry. He brings uh, um, 
uh, Uriah back, her husband back, and he gets him drunk. And he says, go on home, enjoy your wife. He wants to make it look like this is going to be Uriah's baby. But Uriah, being such a man of God and such a devout soldier, is he laid down on the steps with the king's servants. He says, there's no way I'm going to go sleep with my wife when my fellow comrades are out in the field fighting. I'm not going to go in and sleep with my wife. And David got him drunk. He said, just go sleep with her. He says, I'm not going to do it. He says, I will not do it. Far be it from me to do that. He takes an oath. And David knew it was all over. He wasn't going to do it. So David writes a letter to the commander of the army, Joab. He says, take Uriah the Hittite and put him in a place of battle that's very fierce and then withdraw from him. And he sends the letter by Uriah's own hand. You want to see how dastardly a person can get? And if you think, oh, David, how dastardly you can get. Look at yourself. I look at myself. That's how dastardly we can become when we start pursuing sin. This is within all of us. Disability. And he went and, jo- and, and, and Uriah was, was killed. Not just Uriah, but several men, when they withdrew, the enemies shot from the wall and they knew they were never to go toward the wall because you can read other accounts in the Bible where they were instructed, never go near the wall of a city because archers will shoot. And there's a, there's a story in the Bible of Abimelech where just a woman threw a rock down and killed a great king. Never go near a wall but they sent him to the wall. And the archers killed not just him, but several others. So several men were killed as a result of this. This was David's downfall. And you can read about, you can read about how um, Nathan the prophet came to him and exposed him. And the result, how God said, the sword shall never depart from your house. Go ahead, man. Cheat on your wife. Cheat on your wife. And you will see The sword will never depart from your house. Forever you will pay for this. Go ahead, woman. Cheat on your husband. You will see the sword will never depart from your house when you violate God's ways. Let's look in... in, Let's just finish this up by looking in 2 Samuel chapter 23 just to show you the names of these men. 2 Samuel chapter 23... It's listing the names of David's mighty men, those who really stood with him. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34. Eliphat, the, the son of Aspei, the son of Mekaitha. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. There's Eliam. That's the Eliam that it was speaking of in, 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 in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's Bathsheba's father, Eliam. Who was Eliam's father? Eliam's father was Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Who was Ahithophel, the Gilonite? That was David's trusted counselor. That was his right-hand man who gave him godly counsel. And you might remember in the rebellion of David's son, Absalom, there was one trusted counselor that chose Absalom and turned against David. And it was Ahithophel, the Gilonite. Why? Because David had destroyed that family by sleeping with Bathsheba, who was Eliam's daughter, Ahithophel's granddaughter. When they said, David, that's Bathsheba, Eliam's daughter, they was also saying, that's Ahithophel's granddaughter. That's your trusted servant. 
And then you go back down to the end of that chapter, verse 39, and Uriah the Hittite. There are 37 men that are listed as mighty men of David. One was Eliam, and the other was Uriah the Hittite. When we lose the care for people, when we, when we say people don't come first, then we're going to lose everything. The human being is the thing of most value. Jesus knew that. The church is supposed to know this. Nations are supposed to know that. And when nations lose sight of that, they slip into the third world. If nations don't realize this, they never rise out, out of the third world. They're hard and cruel to their people. When politicians miss that, it is going to be their downfall. It will be their downfall. When church leaders miss that, it will be their downfall. When CEOs, when surgeons, when physicians, when owners of companies forget that, it will be their downfall. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that you set in the hearts of these young people the fear of God to fear your commandments to violate them. Father, I pray for these young men that they would take heart from the things that were said. I pray for these young women that they too would take heart. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the stiff warnings that you present before us for how absolute your word is. And yet you call us to take care of the poor, the sick, the needy. That's what you've called us to. That we are to not just look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others with humility of mind that we should be doing this. Father, I pray for these young people that you would give them humility of mind that as they start to come up and to graduate and to move in positions and move up, that they will always remember this, that they would have humility of mind and never use their position to so abuse others. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.